If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're jumping around a little bit. We were in 1 Peter chapter 3 last week, but we're going to rewind a little bit to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. I want to reiterate what Steph said. If regeneration is your home, we're going to be having a family meeting tomorrow night at 8 p.m. via Zoom where it's our heart to share with you about our plan to reopen and our plan for discipleship and formation in the way of Jesus throughout this summer. And so I wanna prepare you tomorrow night for an honest conversation about what our plans are and a challenging conversation where we're really gonna push and encourage and invite and challenge and, and do everything we can to invite you to reorient your life around smaller communities in the months ahead. The gathered space, this space is good, but one of the things that I'm finding is that those who are thriving spiritually in this season are those who are pressing into smaller communities, and so we're going to be creating some ways for you to do that uh, throughout this summer, and I'm really excited about that, so I'm looking forward to seeing you, seeing you tomorrow at 8. When uh, Steph and I started dating, this was in 2011, right ahead of 2000, oh, excuse me, 2010, uh, when we started dating, this was at a time when putting your relationship status on Facebook was a big deal. When putting your relationship status on Facebook was a big deal. And so uh, there came a time when we were dating a few months in that we decided to go Facebook official and put on our Facebook pages, Kyle Tennant is in a relationship with Stephanie Tennant. Now, I don't know if you know this, but there's multiple relationship status options. And so when we got married, we changed the relationship status to married. But one of the relationship statuses is, is this. It's complicated. It's complicated. This is how a lot of us feel toward government these days. And yes, by the way, I am preaching about government this morning. So if you suddenly have something else to do, grace and peace to you. Uh, this is a lot of how a lot of us feel about government these days. Is, is government doing too much to protect us from COVID-19? Is it doing too little? And as we turn to 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17, what I want us to see is that as the people of Jesus, our relationship status with government has always been, it's complicated and will always be. It's complicated. So to begin, I thought we could start this morning with everybody's favorite topic, early Christian history. I know, that's exciting. Uh, Let's start with Jesus, the very founder of our way and the founder of our religion. Jesus was put to death in fulfillment of prophecy and by his own choice, but the instrument of Jesus' death was a corrupt government desperate to keep its hold on the people it ruled. Jesus' trial was a mock trial at best. Jesus was put to death by government officials eager to please people. Jesus was no friend of the empire, and in fact, Jesus is a patriot for no nation other than his own, his kingdom. After the death of Jesus... The Jesus people and their religion explodes across the Greco-Roman world, such that by A.D. 49, a mere 16 or so years after Jesus dies, there are so many Christians in Rome, and these Christians, which at this time are just viewed as a sect of Judaism, 
The Christians and the Jews are so publicly engaged in debate over the nature of Crestus or Jesus that the Roman Empire at the time casts the Jews out of Rome. Fast forward to AD 64 and Rome, the city, catches fire. The emperor at the time, Nero, decided to place the blame for the fire that destroyed much of the city at the feet of Christians. And so tradition says that Nero began, one, and history says that Nero began one of the most intense periods of persecution in the city of Rome toward Christians, devising unbelievable tortures, uh, the highest of which was wrapping Christians in oil cloth, placing them on a stake, and lighting them on fire for his dinner parties. Paul and Peter, tradition says, died in Rome while Nero was reigning. After Nero comes the emperor Trajan, who took Nero's persecution, which was focused on Rome and hot-blooded and violent, and he made it more cold-blooded and pervasive. By that I mean what was a kind of random series of events in Rome in AD 64 under Trajan becomes systematized into the law of the Roman Empire. Christianity is declared illegal. Public preaching of the way of Jesus is outlawed, and these are stipulations put into the code of Roman law that cover the Roman Empire. And what Trajan does launches 200 or so years of systematic oppression and suppression, oppression and suppression of Christians. Uh, that occasionally reaches these spikes of hot-blooded violence, like under the Emperor Decian or Valerian. But all of this changes in 313 when the Emperor Constantine, who declares himself a Christian, signs and declares the Edict of Milan. Not only did the Edict of Milan make Christianity legal again, it popularized Christianity in the empire It popularized it in part because Constantine declared himself a Christian and also because it made it possible for Christians to come out into the public square again. And now this spiritual family, which had learned not only to survive, but thrive on the fringes of Roman society, now is thrust to the center of it. After the Edict of Milan, Christians for the first time in history started building public houses of worship before that they used homes. Uh, For the first time, Christian clergy had tax-exempt status and had a high place in uh, Roman society. Uh, Christians were suddenly, in a moment, found in royal courts across the empire, and Christianity continues to grow, obviously through the Middle Ages when the church was the same as the state. The Protestant Reformation was as spiritual as it was political, with certain nations adhering to Protestantism, other nations adhering to Roman Catholicism, hiding certain key Reformation leaders behind their borders. America is founded by people protesting government overreach in the areas of religion. In the 1980s, Jerry Falwell founded the Moral Majority, which united Christians of all sects in the United States to... uh, use their voting block to achieve their values in public policy. It is a wave of evangelical support that brought Donald Trump into the office. What, what, what I'm saying to you is that Christianity's relationship with government is complex and complicated and best told through the story of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. You remember this story, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. She goes into the Three Bears' house and she finds... Soup that is too hot and soup that is too cold, a bed that is too hard and a bed 
that is too soft. But unlike Goldilocks, Christians, when it comes to government, never find the soup that is just right or the bed that is just right. Instead, Christians are either too trustful or too fearful of their government. They are either allured, besotted, and lovesick with the thought of political power, sometimes even sacrificing their own self-proclaimed values to get it, or they are disdainful, outraged, and calling those at the political helm cop-outs and faithless. And conveniently, in a two-party system such as we have in the United States, you can be on one of those sides under one president and another side in the next. In the confusion and chaos of especially American politics, we need a grounding center. And the confusion and chaos of American politics, which has never seemed in some levels more chaotic than now, as we hear uh, responses to coronavirus and to COVID-19 fall along party lines where one side is overinflating and one side is reckless and dangerous, so say each side about the other. What we need as the people of Jesus in this cultural moment, perhaps more than ever, is a grounded center In the changing weather of our government's opinions toward Christianity, we need a grounding center. And 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, helps us find our way to that grounding center. And it does so with one troubling word, submit. Submit. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Be subject or submit Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but but living as servants of God. Verse 17, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I'm going to unpack those verses in a minute, but let's just remind ourselves again about the context of First Peter. It's so important when we're reading scripture to bear in mind what is happening in the larger section of a chapter, the larger section of a book. And so remember that Peter is writing to Christians facing spiritual exile, not geopolitical exile. They've not been uprooted from one their, from their country of origin and placed somewhere else. No, they are spiritual exiles far from their heavenly home in the midst of what Peter calls an aggravating trial. An aggravating trial that, ex- that stems from their experience of spiritual birth, of new birth. In the blink of an eye, these Christians that Peter is writing to have become aliens and sojourners, strangers wandering in, the, in a strange land. And it just so happens that the strange land is the place that they always have been. Something has happened by virtue of this spiritual change inside of them that has radically altered the way that they interact together uh, and, and with their communities. When they heard and believed the good news that was preached to them, they became members of a holy nation. 
and a chosen race. They are not from here anymore. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, all the way through chapter 3, verse 12, this long section, Peter is unpacking a key virtue for exiles, the virtues of honor and submission, which we said last week are two sides of the same coin. I cannot honor someone without submitting to them. I cannot submit to someone without honoring someone. Peter says that these virtues of honor and submission are found in the very character and life of Jesus, who submitted and honored those over him even to the point of death. And Peter has applied this, we looked last week at marriage, he's applied this to slaves and masters, but here in these verses, 13 through 17, Peter is applying this idea of submission and honor to every Christian under governmental rule, which means every Christian everywhere. And Peter says these practices of honor and submission are especially important when it comes to government. And interestingly, when the New Testament talks about government, whether it's in Paul or Peter or even in Jesus, the tone is of submitting to governing authorities. Submitting to governing authorities, Paul says to Timothy, so that it may go well with us and we may have peace and live a quiet life. Peter's version of that is that it would silence the talk of foolish and ignorant people. The posture of the people of Jesus toward their government is that of submission and honor. So I want to unpack that in these verses. Peter's command in these verses, verses 13 through 17 of 1 Peter chapter 2, is to submit. And everything else Peter says in these lines is an unpacking of or a refining of the submission that we are to have toward government. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake, and we'll get to the for the Lord's sake in a second. Be subject to every human institution. That word, be subject, submit yourselves to, guides the rest of the passage. Because here's what Peter says. Peter says that we are to submit ourselves to government officials of every rank, whether they be of the highest office or the lowest office. In other words, we show honor and submission towards presidents and the parking meter guy. We show, uh, we, 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 we show submission and honor to senators and the service clerk at the BMV who maybe doesn't have the best attitude ever. Our posture of submission and its friend honor are applied to all government officials everywhere across the board at all times. He says, such submission is the will of God. Stop and think about that for a second. When I was a young Christian, I so struggled with what is the will of God for my life. But I'll tell you what, there's a few times in the New Testament where it's just made clear. In Thessalonians, Paul says, this is the will of God for you, that you should be holy and abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, well, you can't argue with that. Here also is the will of God for us as the way of people of the way of Jesus, is to have an, a posture of honor and submission toward governing authorities. And by engaging in that posture, Peter, notice he makes an evangelistic kind of twist. He says this will silence the talk of foolish and ignorant people. You see, already that Christians were not being openly persecuted as Peter is writing this letter, but Peter's letter is almost prophetic. It is prophetic because just a few years after he puts his pen down, Nero begins intense persecution in Rome that will then be systematized under Emperor Trajan. And Peter is saying that by being model citizens, by doing good, and that phrase even has some connotation in the classical world of being an upright and upstanding citizen, by doing good, Peter says we will silence the talk of foolish and ignorant people. And I'll tell you what, 
the way that Christians are posting on social media right now is giving a lot of credibility to foolish and ignorant people. And Peter says, instead of throwing stones at them for throwing stones at us, if we do good and live with a posture of submission, we silence their talk. There's an evangelistic purpose here. We want to make it so that we live in such a way that nobody has anything bad to say about us, unless it is they tend to talk about Jesus a little too much. Other than that, he's a good guy. That's what we're aiming for. And notice that Peter says, and this is so radical to our individualistic American society, he says that submission is actually freedom. He says that submission is actually freedom. In 21st century America, we view freedom as absence of constraint. But in the biblical imagination, freedom is just found in having the right master. And our master, Peter says, isn't the government and it isn't ourselves. Our master is God. Do you see what he, he says here in, in, in verse 16? Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Submission is freedom. Honor is freedom. And Peter says we do all of this for the Lord's sake. As if to say, by honoring governing authorities, by having a posture of submission toward governing authorities, we are actually having a posture of submission and honor to Jesus. The Jesus who demonstrated submission to government even unto the point of his death, and the Jesus whose motivation uh, in all things was the glory of his Father, the advance of his kingdom, which is why, Peter, why Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God's what is God's. As if to say, don't get so entangled in that. Give him what is necessary. Give Caesar what is necessary so that you can give everything else to the Lord. And Peter ends this passage with four commands. The first is this, honor everyone. Honor is the way of life for the person of Jesus. Everyone, whether a Christian or a non-Christian, is worthy of our honor. And the way that we honor people is in our posture of submission toward them and the words that we choose to say or choose not to say. Honor is to put away what Peter tells us to put away in chapter 2, verse 1, to put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. If I am slandering someone or envying them, if I I am deceiving them, if I have malice towards someone, there's no way that there's any room for honor in my heart. To honor someone is to have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love and a tender heart and a humble mind. It is to speak blessing It is to speak blessing, to speak what is there, not what is missing. Hear me on this. To honor someone is to speak what is there, not what is missing. And this is a particular stronghold and habit of mind, not only in our larger American culture, but I would also argue here in Trumbull County, we are very quick to say what is missing and what is lacking and what we do not like. And honor Honor is marked by saying what is and what we like and what is worthy of praise. This is a radical posture in a time of contempt and mean-spiritedness and complaining and criticism to instead choose to speak honor and life because Proverbs says life and death are in the power of the tongue. To speak honor over someone is to speak life into them. He says, honor everyone. Then he says, love the brotherhood. We honor everyone, but we reserve a special affection 
and care for those who are part of the spiritual family. I love my neighbors. I practice evangelism. I want to tell them about the gospel, but there is a preference I give to you as my spiritual sibling that I do not give to those who are not my spiritual sibling. And remember, by the way, there's a theme in this letter of spiritual family. This means, in particular in the zone of politics, just to name this, it means when you say something political that makes me want to smack you, I walk away. When you say something about politics that makes me want to wring your neck, I just smile and nod. And then Peter says, honor the emperor and fear God. And I think in these two commands, fear God, honor the emperor, fear God, honor the emperor, it is when we live into the tension of these or or live into the fullness of these that we engage with government like Goldilocks wants to engage with government just right. We find that grounded center. And it's when we flip them that we end up in trouble. Let me tell you what I mean. Peter says, fear God. And when the Bible tells us to fear God, which it does frequently in the Old and the New Testaments, it is not inviting us to terror or anxiety. Instead, what it is inviting us to is a reverential awe and affection for the power of God and the protection of God. Fear is a reverential awe and affection for God's care and protection and power. It often results in worship. That's what it means to fear God, to offer reverential awe and affection. And my suspicion My suspicion is that our complicated relationship with government has to do with flipping these commands of offering honor to God instead of fear and offering reverential fear to government for its care and protection over us, often in the name of patriotism. Now hear me out on this. Hear me out on what this might look like. What does it look like when we have begun to offer our fear, our reverential awe to government and to politicians instead of to God and just offered him honor? Well, what it means is it could could look like this. It could look like um, a church that a Moody student that I knew uh, served at in Chicago, a church that had a number of World War II veterans, men worthy of honor because of their courage, men worthy of honor because of their sacrifice. In this church in Chicago, they sang an American, an American hymn every Sunday. And you begin to wonder, are we offering worship to the Lord or perhaps to our nation? It might also look like singing more loudly a song of patriotism than you might sing a song of praise. You might be offering your reverential fear and awe that, is, that belongs to God and instead offering it to your nation if you are more worked up emotionally over political Facebook posts than you are when you encounter the presence of God. It might be that you have offered your fear, your reverential awe and respect to your government if you are more well-versed in political issues than you are in scripture. And if you're doing that, by the way, you're living in the wrong story. You have embedded yourself not in the story of scripture and the way of Jesus. You have embedded yourself into the story of American politics. 
Listen, I know self-proclaimed Christians who I have never seen post anything spiritual on their Facebook, but they post plenty of memes about presidents and senators and congressmen and congresswomen that they do not like. I know a lot of Christians who have a greater passion for talking about politics and trying to convince their family members why their position on immigration or economy or whatever is right, but would never dare to share the gospel with them and couldn't even if they had to. Listen, when I fear the government, when I fear my nation, when I offer my nation reverential awe and affection, often in the name of patriotism, What ends up happening is that I love my government for giving me the security and protection that I'm supposed to be getting from God. And when I love that protection, I'm going to love the person or the group that gives me that protection, and I'm going to hate and vote against and campaign against the person or group who wants to take that care and protection away from me. Let me say that again. When I offer When I flip Peter's commands and I fear my nation and offer my nation reverential fear and awe, I begin to love my nation for the care and protection that I receive from God. I forget God. I give lip service to him, but I'm just honoring him. He's the afterthought. And so then what happens is I love the government and I love the group that wants to give me the care and the protection that I need. And the opposite of that is I begin to hate the group or the person who threatens to take that away from me. And so if I'm a red voter, I'm gonna love the red guys because they're gonna bring me the care and protection I need and I'm gonna hate the blue guys because they're gonna try to take that away from me. If if I love the blue guys, I'm gonna love them for giving me the care and protection that I want and I need, the care and protection I'm supposed to be getting from God. And I'm going to hate the red guys because they're trying to take it away from me. And so what I end up doing as I get afraid of these people who are threatening to take away the care and protection that my nation gives me, what I start doing is I focus in on my rights instead of my responsibilities. And that is what has happened across the board in our nation. We have become a conversation of competing rights instead of a willful acceptance of responsibility. Here's what I mean. We debate the rights of the unborn versus the right of the woman. We debate the rights of LGBTQ persons to be married versus the rights of the cake baker to bake or not bake their cake. We, 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 we insist on the rights of empowering the poor versus protecting the self-made. And notice what Peter does to find us to a grounded center in this back and forth between red and blue and this battle of rights and this fear-mongering and anxiety that comes from offering our reverential fear to our nation. Peter doesn't focus on rights. He focuses on responsibilities. And to stop you from saying, well, Peter didn't know what rights were. That's something we have in America. Listen, Roman citizens had a profound level of rights of which Paul in in the book of Acts avails himself. Uh, Roman citizens had profound rights within their government, but Peter doesn't tell his people to insist on their rights. He calls them to take up their responsibilities. Do good. This is God's will that you would submit to governing authorities. And here's the test case for this. The test case for your posture of submission is this. Is the question of wearing a mask a question of responsibilities or rights? By being asked to wear a mask, 
Is that an issue of me taking on responsibility as a citizen who loves my neighbor? Or is that a question of my right to do what I please? And Peter would say that we lean into responsibilities over rights. Scripture would say we lean into responsibilities over rights, and taking up responsibilities is how that we lean into that posture of submission. And Peter lifts up rights and responsibilities by lifting up King Jesus. In verse 21 of this chapter, he keeps coming back to it. This is the grounding center for this section. For to this submission, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Why do we revile in return? Well, it's my right to say what I want back. Jesus doesn't worry about his rights. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter lifts up King Jesus as the very epitome of submission uh, the, not maybe the epitome, the par excellence, the highest example uh, uh, of submission and honor, and says we are called to follow in his steps. We are called to follow in the steps of King Jesus. As the people of God, we confess that God is our king. And when we say that Jesus is our Lord, When we say that Jesus is our king, we are not naming a spiritual reality that means less than real. We are naming the most true reality. In fact, the gospel, N.T. Wright and Scott McKnight would say, most purely defined, is not a story of how you and I die and go to heaven. The gospel is the story of how God becomes king. The gospel is the story about how God becomes king, how God in Christ becomes king, which means that when we submit to Jesus as Lord, we are not just making a spiritual decision, we are making a political one. In the ancient context of of, uh, Peter's letter and of the New Testament, there was only one Lord and his name was Caesar. Caesar Curios was the cry of the Roman Empire. Caesar is Lord and into that steps Jesus. And as the gospel goes out of Palestine into the Greco-Roman world, the church bumps up against some trouble because they're saying Jesus is Lord. In a world where only Caesar is Lord, they are saying Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this was a dangerous statement then. And if we equate being American with being Christian, we forget how dangerous the statement that our Lord is Jesus and that our citizenship in heaven, we forget that those are dangerous statements. The New Testament tells us that to follow in Jesus' footsteps is to live, in the words of Philippians, as a citizen of heaven. The New Testament says that we have been transferred from one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of God's beloved son, the kingdom of light. Jesus says this kingdom is not, his kingdom is not of this world, it is of that world, and it is of that world that we belong, and it is in this world that we wander as exiles. My citizenship, church, is not found on my passport, that is but temporary. My citizenship is in heaven. My citizenship is found in Jesus. And so my trust in the government, our trust in the government is limited 
I only offer my government my honor and my submission. I do not offer my fear or my loyalty or my reverential awe. Instead, that is reserved for Jesus, who was a patriot for his own kingdom and his kingdom only. And what could be more radical? Listen to me. What could be more radical in a time of nonstop Facebook food fights over wearing masks and not wearing masks, over government overreach or not taking this seriously enough? I mean, if it's possible for us to be such a divided country, it has come to this. We have divided along party lines over global pandemic. And in this time of name calling and shaming and complaining and criticism and memes and endless nastiness, the way of Jesus says to do something radical. It says to be submissive. And in our submissiveness, in our honor, in our calmness, what we become is people who silence the foolish talk of ignorant people, the foolish talk that just dominates our Facebook feeds. I got off of Facebook at the end of last year and got back on as if to try to take a digital and virtual step closer to our spiritual family in this time. It is like the dregs, the dregs of conservative Christianity meets like angry late night tirades about stupid things. It is not a place of submission and honor. And let me be clear about submission and honor. When there is sin and tyranny, we oppose it because Jesus opposes sin and tyranny and injustice and oppression. He does this by healing Gentiles. He does this by bringing the person on the fringe to the center. He does this by going to the temple and flipping tables. He does this by having an explicit mission of justice for the poor. Martin Luther King and all government protests on some level find their rootedness in the practice of Jesus. Pacifism finds its rootedness in the practice of Jesus, who opposes tyranny wherever he finds it. And so hear me on this. We oppose systematic sin of the way of Jesus, and we do not let either party define what systematic, systemic sin is. We want, to make our, we want to have every opportunity to make our witness clear when we face systemic sin and oppression. And so let me see if I can hit both political sides here. We want to attack racial injustice and immigration policy with the same vigor that we attack, uh, pro, uh, we attack protecting the rights of the unborn. And what we tend to do is we pick one of those. Jesus opposes injustice and still manages to do it in a way that is honoring. But for us, our overall posture is not hateful, it is not angry, it is not vitriol, it is not disdain, it is not contempt, it is not sarcasm, it is not mockery. It is submission and honor. I let my reasonableness, my reasonableness be known to everyone through my gentle and quiet spirit. I share my heart and my spirit long before I share how I vote. In other words, I do this. I honor everyone. I love the brotherhood. I fear God. And I honor the emperor. Let me pray.